Yeah, well, I want to begin with a question. And um, what is life with God really like? Um, if, as you came in uh, the building tonight, um, you had been given um, a little piece of paper and you had to write down in just a few words the answer to that question, what is life with God really like? I wonder what you would say. Um, or here's another version of that same question. As people across Scotland look at the church in Scotland, what might they say life with God seems like? Now, if we were to interview them, what kind of words would they choose? If we were going to do that, we would have to account for all kinds of natural biases, wouldn't we, and sin. But if we did it, it would be quite interesting, wouldn't it? I wonder how different the answers would be. If we were to write our answer to that question and we knew that nobody would see what we had written, how big a difference would there be between those two lists? Would they, do we think that life with God means that we have to be driven, intense, really, really zealous, look perfect, never making a mistake, never admitting a mistake? Or might it be something better? Might it be something different? Might it be something wonderful? And to get even more personal right at the beginning of a sermon, what do you think God thinks of you tonight? What sort of relationship does God want with each one of us? Does God put up with us? Or does God actually love us? And does that change when we suffer or struggle or sin? Is God just for us as long as we perform for him? Is God a slave driver or a loving father? Now, I'm really sure that almost all of us here tonight, if we're Christians, we would say the latter. Um, but to use a musical analogy, to what extent is that truth, the, the theme tune, the, the background music of our lives? And if it's not, then why not? And I've used my um, imagination a little bit as uh, we've begun, but these were the kind of questions that were driving Paul as he wrote this letter. Fundamentally, what is life with God really like? Uh, some of you uh, here tonight, you know that I really like American history, American presidential history. It's incredibly geeky interest. And lots of the American presidents have nicknames. Um, Ronald Reagan was known as the great communicator um, because he was an actor beforehand. Um, and Abraham Lincoln, he was known as the great emancipator. 
And Paul is just like that in this passage. This letter is a really personal plea to live in the freedom that Jesus gives. And in chapter 4, Paul is in anguish. He is perplexed. He is absolutely desperate to stop people he loves running away from Jesus back to a land of slavery. Because certain people had got into this church and started unsettling them. They were very persuasive. They caused these Christians to doubt. They told them lies about their relationship with God. And Paul, he stands between them both and he says to his friends, Stop. Don't go back. Run away from slavery. And he does it in this passage, I think, in two ways. In verses 1 to 7, he speaks positively. And then in verses 8 to the end, he speaks negatively. In verses 1 to 7, he shows us how slaves become sons. How slaves become sons. And then in the next part of the passage, he shows the opposite. How sons become slaves again. So verses 1 to 7, and... This is our first point, how slaves become sons. In these verses, Paul is picking up from the end of chapter 3. And if you were here last week, maybe you can remember uh, what he spoke about at the end. In verse 26, Paul talked about the privilege that we share in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith. And in these verses, these verses 1 to 7, he goes into more detail about how exactly that happened, what it looked like. And what's a little bit tricky here is that though they've become sons, he says that they used to be children. And can you see that in verses uh, 3 and 4? So just to avoid confusion, what we need to uh, realize is that when he calls them children in this section here, and when he calls them sons... He's talking about two different stages. And Paul says there was a time when God's people were like children. And he uses a a wonderful illustration to make this point. Um, Kids who are here tonight, you would love the idea, wouldn't you, of having a massive um, trust fund, lots of money in the bank uh, that you were going to get maybe when you were 16 or 18. Uh, I know you would like that, yeah? Yeah. And uh, Paul says that God's people were like that in a sense. And they had to wait for something. And the Father had kept them waiting. God's people in the Old Testament, they were under a guardian. They, They were under the law. And they were waiting for the date when they would be set free, able to enjoy what God had promised. But Paul says that experience, it was kind of like slavery. He says that during this time they were enslaved, he says, to the elementary principles of the world. And he uses the same language in verses 8 and 9. And now that phrase is is quite tricky to translate. Um, Some people think that Paul is saying, and that he's stressing the first word here, the idea that the law was kind of elementary, um, maybe like the ABC or, the, or one, two, three um, of life with God. 
Um, other people stress the second word, principles. They see a reference here to, to demonic powers, forces, spiritual forces at work in the world. I like what uh, John Stott suggests. He says both ideas have been mixed in here. We can get enslaved when something good with a good purpose like God's law is used for wrong ends. He writes, instead of being a stepping stone to liberty, Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac. God's people before Christ came and now in the Galatian church, they had started to think of law-keeping as a way of being saved, of staying saved. But that became a trap. That became a trap because they couldn't keep it. And what they needed was deliverance. They needed rescue. And that is exactly what has happened, says Paul. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And the redemption language Paul uses here is really beautiful. There are real echoes of the exodus. And Paul is saying that just like the Israelites, we have been brought out of slavery. And what this verse points to is the planning, the preparation involved in our redemption. God waited for the moment of his choosing. It was not that the father had to be persuaded by the son to save us. No, God sent him forth. But can you see the ultimate aim of it all? Why did all this happen? Why did God send his son? Why was he born? Why was he born into our condition? Why did he redeem us? Was it so that we could just live as his subjects? Was it so that we could just have a kind of blank slate? No. So much more than that, isn't it? So that we might receive adoption as sons. That was the great goal of it all. That was God's purpose. And can you see the enormity of what Paul is saying has happened to us? Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I think this verse, verse 6, is, is a really wonderful verse. And I want us to um, just linger on it for um, a moment. Andy and I, we both in our sermons last week mentioned grannies. Um, and my granddad, um, he always had, growing up, um, I can remember as a boy, he always had a bag of Fox's Glacier Mints. Anyone remember them? And the thing about Fox's Glacier Mints is you cannot crunch them. Um, or you'll destroy your teeth. Uh, I think sucking them kind of has the same effect. But I want us to look at that verse, verse 6, and just kind of linger on it a little bit. And savor it for a little while. Do you see that this is the second, do you see the second sending that has taken place in just a few verses? In verse 4, God sent his son. But now we read that God sent the spirit. And whose spirit did he send? He sent the spirit of his son. 
And this is really important. And sometimes when we speak about the Holy Spirit, we can give the impression that it's, or that he is a kind of raw power. And like something out of um, Star Wars, that kind of thing. Like some cosmic, impersonal force. But that is not what Paul says, is it? As those united to Christ, we have, we have been given the spirit of his son. As Paul says back in Galatians 2, chapter 20, Christ lives in me. We are united to him. We participate in him. And what is the cry that results from it? It is the cry, Abba. Father, Abba is both intimate and respectful. It was the cry Jesus cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the word cry is the word for a shout, a desperate cry. And what we need to see tonight is that when you and I cry out to God like that, when we cry, Abba, Father, that is not something that we have just willed up in ourselves. It is never just something that we have decided to do on our own. No, can you see that we do that because Father, Son, and Spirit have brought us to that point. We say it because God has been at work in our lives. Can you feel some of the, the assurance of that? That when you cry out to God like that, it is evidence that he is at work in you. That he is already changing you. That you are no longer a slave, but a son. Now what difference does all this make? Well, just think about the times that we fail in the Christian life. Think of the prodigal son. And when he was in all the mess that he had made, all his sin and everything, and beginning to turn back to his father, what did he hope for? What was his wish? Wasn't it this? Make me like one of your hired hands. Father, I'm happy to come back to you, but I'll just work for you. I know I can't expect to be in your family. I know I just have to kind of keep my distance away from you. Isn't that how you and I often think with God? Maybe tonight you think, I have blown it. I have blown it with God. I have done something that is so bad. I have done something I swore I would never do. And I've done it. I could never come back to him. When we are thinking like that, who are we listening to? If I do come back, the best I could hope for is slavery. God says, no. God promises so much more than that. When we stumble, when we fall, he picks us up. We are sons, not slaves. So that's how slaves become sons. But how do sons become slaves? Some of you may know about um, Stockholm Syndrome. 
And it's a really interesting, uh, quite strange condition. It develops when, when a person has um, been kidnapped by somebody and they form a kind of attachment with that person. They form a kind of reliance on them during their captivity. Sometimes they might do that just to stay alive, just to, to kind of humanize the other person. But sometimes it can result in them defending their kidnapper and preferring captivity to freedom. And no illustration is perfect, but in a sense, that is what was happening to the people Paul wrote to. They had tasted freedom, and yet they were starting to be drawn back to slavery. And maybe you think, how could people who've experienced the joy of living as God's sons and daughters, how could they possibly turn back like that? And I think you and I have to say to that question, well, easily, very, very easily for all sorts of reasons. You and I, we prefer to be saved by our works. It seems right. God has done so much for us and we need to pay him back. It seems easier and it appeals to our pride. Because grace is so counterintuitive. Grace is not the way the world works, is it? You and I, we naturally think we're saved by God, by what we do for him. And for many people, it can be a lifelong struggle to break out of that mindset. And there will also always be people who want to lock the doors and keep us in slavery. And in verse 17, Paul shows us this. And if verse 6 was uh, the lovely verse to linger over... Well, verse 17 is a lot more ugly, isn't it? Because in this verse, Paul, he unmasks the false teachers. And it's very gory stuff. Look at the way they were behaving. Paul says, they make much of you. They're coming along making much of these Christians. What might that have looked like? What was their method? It was flattery. It was saying things like, well, you're somebody um, with real spiritual potential. We can see that you are someone who is really growing. But have you heard about this um, new program that we've got, we've started? It'll really take you on to maturity. It will really help you grow. It will really help you defeat sin. And this is so often how false teaching works. False teachers, they appeal to a person's zeal, sincerity, desire to live a godly life. And we need to be very aware of that. We need to be suspicious of that. They make much of you. They want to shut you out, Paul says. They want to keep you captive. But why do they do that? What's their motivation? Is it your growth? Is it your flourishing? No. They do it, Paul says, 
so that you make much of them. They are manipulating you, Paul is saying. They are doing all this to just, well, make themselves feel good. Um, I mentioned advertising last week and Tesco, other supermarkets are available. Um, And what these false teachers were offering, it was a kind of club card Christianity where loyalty to their brand, their leaders, their way of doing things was the only way to reward, was the way to bonus points, special offers. And it wasn't Christianity at all because it took the focus off Jesus and it put it on them. Now, no doubt, compared to Paul, they looked extremely slick. If you look at verses 12 to 16, I think we see this. Paul was very weak. Paul's ministry seemed unimpressive. When he first arrived to speak to these Christians, he clearly, in the verses you can see, he had some kind of illness. Maybe it was... Uh, the commentators love to speculate, was it an eye issue? Is that why um, in verse 15 he talks about um, gouging out their eyes? We don't really know. And yet these, these people had loved Paul. They had received Paul's message. They had listened to them. But now they want, well, they want a more impressive form of Christianity. And now they're starting to believe lies. Lies about Christ, lies about Paul, and Paul is perplexed by them. He is their father. And yet they're starting to view him like an enemy. And can you see his motivation in it all? His motivation is so different to the false teachers. He says, become like me in verse 12, as I became like you, which we might think is similar to the goal of false teachers. But that's wrong. Because verse 19 gives us his goal for them. Do you see that? My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What does he want for them? He wants to see Christ formed in them. It's a really beautiful expression, isn't it? Paul wanted them to grow in an ever-increasing Christ-likeness. And what we need to see is that this is so different to the clone mentality of the false teachers. They wanted people who looked and smelled and spoke and thought and behaved just like them. And Paul longs to see his friends, he longs to see them becoming more and more like Christ. More and more like the one who loved them and gave himself for them. So slaves, sons, can become slaves. Tonight, do we think of God as a slave driver or as a father? And I mentioned the prodigal son um, earlier on. Do, we, do you remember his big brother? Luke 15 is really the story of two lost boys, isn't it? 
What did Big Brother say to his dad when he welcomed back the one who'd run away? All these years I've been slaving for you. I've done everything right. I've been the model son. I've not run off and spoiled all my inheritance like he has. What are you playing at? Inviting him back in here. But what is the first word the father says in response to him? He says, son. Son, you're always with me. All I have is yours. Come and celebrate. Is that how we think of God tonight? See, that is how God responds to us. He wants to welcome, draw us back to him as our father. When we behave like that brother, when we're tempted to say things like, well, I'm not really like the rest of the people I work with or study with who do all sorts of terrible things that uh, we part of me would really like to do. I've kept myself pure. I've been a model Christian. I'm not like those people over there who seem a bit dodgy or a bit liberal. I've read my Bible diligently. I've tried really hard to grow. I've sacrificed. I've attended every service. But what do we need to be reminded of when we think like that? Because we do think like that, don't we? Well, we need to be reminded that we are not slaves. We are sons. We need to be reminded that God the Father sent the Son. And that to all who believe in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Um, On their first date, the future Mr. and Mrs. Obama... Uh, they went to see Les Miserables. Uh, Marianne and I had our first date at a Cafe Nero behind the Eastgate shopping centre in Inverness, which is not quite as classy, but it seems to have uh, worked okay in the end. And Les Miserables, Les Mis, is um, Victor Hugo's wonderful tale set around the time of the French Revolution And at the heart of it is a clash between two men. One of them is the criminal, Jean Valjean. And the other is the police inspector, Javert. And Valjean is a man who experiences grace and mercy after he commits a a relatively small crime. But all Javert wants is to inflict punishment and justice on him. He follows after him. Now, apparently, Barack and Michelle walked out of Les Mis at the break. Um, maybe um, it was because they just wanted to chat to each other. Um, that's often what pe- two people on a first date really want to do. But uh, I think what they said was that all they could see was the chains, the violence, the poverty, uh, the oppression in the story. They grew tired of it. And they miss the beauty of it. And you and I can do that too. We can miss the grace that runs through the whole Bible. We can miss the wonderful news 
that God does not treat us the way we expect. God does not treat us the way our sins deserve. And God does not call us to serve him out of slavish fear. Instead, God tells us we are his sons. We are his children. We are part of the family. We have been adopted. We are loved. We are free. And all of this is forever. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem and save us. We thank you that you do not want to keep us at arm's length. Instead, you've welcomed us into your family. You've put a a robe around our shoulders. You've spread a table before us. You've put a ring on our finger. And you've called us your beloved child. Help us to live in the light of these things. For we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake and his glory. Amen.